Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Management of Savagery. Principles of Violence. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and thank you for joining us for this episode 51, The Principles of Violence. But before we get into that, I just wanted to... I, I don't like pandering like this, but my, my staff and my editor continue to ask me to promote this. But we do have this Patreon account. I know you hear about it in the little intro blurb that we have. But uh, yeah, that, that account and the folks who support us... That is actually becoming a little bit more important because, of course, over this last year, not a whole lot of events going on, not a whole lot of tournaments going on, so nothing to really get to for the most part. However, things are opening back up. Tournaments are beginning again. Events are talking about maybe again this year. We'll see. But with all of those things in the works, we're hopefully going to start trying to attend more things so that we can kind of cover and get kind of live on-the-ground impressions while we're there. And while we're still going to be able to obviously go to some regardless, with a little bit extra help from y'all, we can probably go to a lot more. So if you've got some extra funds, or if you've got a a desire to, please uh, consider it. If not, that's totally fine. I, I still hope that you enjoy the show and that you're able to get something meaningful out of it. So that's that's a little Patreon speech. The other thing is that we've been discussing, uh, we have been discussing for a while, but we're going to kind of start to move forward on this, the idea of a red bubble, a place where you can get merchandise. Uh, I'm told that this is a good thing to do, so we're, we're going to do it. I've got some ideas, and I mean, my, my editor is brilliant. She's definitely got some ideas too. So hopefully within the next couple of months, we might be able to talk about that as well. Now, this is going to be a fairly short intro section, because I haven't been able to do a whole lot of wargaming over the past little bit. I've gotten a bunch of games set up. I've started building a lot more models, because there's a reason to now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, things are looking forward. The Realm is uh, talking about doing, like, smaller sparring sessions and that sort of thing, and, and perhaps opening it up to a larger practice once things are a bit more settled. And everything's looking up. So... Hopefully I'll have some things to talk about along those lines here relatively shortly. The last thing before we get into our first section is I know that normally before we do another book, so uh, the Icelandic sagas in particular, the saga of Ref the Sly, is coming up after this particular book, and normally we do a a voting period around this time to see what book we're going to go on to next. But in this particular case, I have decided to make an executive decision. Not to that I don't mind y'all's input. It's absolutely fantastic. But there is, there's one book, I know I've talked about it several times, that I've really wanted to sink my teeth into. 
It's a rather long work, so it'll give us plenty of material. It's one of the better volumes that it was written. I, I read it a while ago. It's one of those ones I go over every now and then, but it would just be really cool to go over it with y'all. And it's On War by Clausewitz. It's a, a fantastic book, large enough to bludgeon somebody with, but it's, it's extremely packed with, with excellent observations and some really astute advice on the art of war and on military science. So um, I'm going to take a, a little bit of license and just make that as going to be our book after um, Ref This Sly. So in case you are wondering why you don't see the voting thing up on Facebook, that would be the reason. So on war, Klausowitz, if you want to follow along with us at home, fantastic read. And if you don't like it, you can use it to prop up just about anything. All right, well, I think that's about it for our intro. So if you will now join me, we will move on to section one, hostile operations. In previous episodes of this particular study, we have gone over the disparity between the insurgent and the counterinsurgent, the kind of imbalance that exists in asymmetrical warfare. Now, one thing they both have in common, which is that they are trying to achieve victory. They are trying to either oust the other one from their country or quell a rebellion, but either way, victory is the outcome that both are seeking. I think that goes without saying. But the methods that they use to get there have to be fundamentally different. As we spoke about before with the example of the American Revolution, the Continentals didn't stand a chance against the Redcoats when they met them in the field in a conventional way. They just, they didn't have the same training, the equipment, the sheer number advantage that the Brits had. So they had to adopt different tactics. They had to go about it a different way because the other way was disastrous. So in this episode, we're going to study a little bit about the considerations, principles, and strategies for, these both, for both of these groups and the differences and similarities between them. So first, let's talk about the considerations for the insurgent. If you find yourself on the less powerful side in some way, whether you have smaller numbers, less skill, uh, worse equipment, whatever the case may be, these are some ideas to keep in mind. The first one being that disorder is cheap to create and costly to prevent. It's kind of like something that takes years to create can be destroyed in a matter of minutes, seconds even, if you've got the right tools. So in this way, the, the part of the insurgent is to destabilize the battlefield as much as possible. Because if things are going according to plan, that's bad for the insurgent. The counterinsurgent is all about plans, is all about policy, is all about discipline. While discipline is still important for the insurgent, it's in a different manner. It's very well focused on patience and timing. So this disorder, it can't just be random running about, screaming, uh, haphazardly running into folks, because that sort of disorder does not benefit. The disorder we're talking about is the kind that spreads your enemy, enemy out and makes them vulnerable. Another thing to consider is that insurgents can afford a protracted war. Counterinsurgents cannot. This is a, a fundamental principle of how this all works. The insurgents typically need far less in order to sustain the war effort. 
at least in a historical sense. In a tabletop manner, it's more of a matter of like the quicker you can kill an insurgent force, the better. Because most of the forces that we would call insurgent in the game are ones that are very fast. They compensate for their lack of durability with speed. And so a protracted war for the counterinsurgent is not a good thing because that means that their opponent has the chance to zip around the field scoring objectives while they're just sitting there trying to, to find them, basically. So the counterinsurgent wants to end it quickly. As the insurgent, you want to draw that out as much as possible. Same thing in a physical wargaming situation. If you don't have a time limit, wait. Remember the advice that Toto gave a couple of uh, episodes ago. You don't have to just charge in. Even if people are getting impatient, even if they're getting frustrated, Sun Tzu would love that. Trying to provoke your enemy to some form of, of uh, folly. That's Military Science 101. So be patient. You can afford to be patient. The counterinsurgent cannot. And in this, this line of discipline, abandoning random behavior and implementing military science will only facilitate the achievement of your goals and improve the execution of plans. This random behavior we speak of, it, it may be apparent sometimes on the field, but in, in the best of situations, it's an illusion. Not to overly boast, but when the Dark Angels take the field, in Belagarth this is, it can appear that we don't really know what we're doing. There's no cohesion. We're just kind of all over the place. But we're used to seeing each other. We're used to practicing with one another. Our movements are familiar. And so when we're on the field, we communicate. Not necessarily by shouting at one another, but we know what the other one is going to do. There is discipline there, even if it doesn't look conventional. And the same thing could be said of 40K. As you're sitting there trying to create this discord, trying to lure your enemy into some form of disorder, don't fall for it yourself. We're not out there to just create chaos for chaos's sake, unless you're speaking lore-wise, in which case there's definitely, definitely an army for you. But in terms of the wargaming that we do, serious wargaming, having a plan, making sure that you have the discipline to kind of see things through, the patience to be able to get the timing just right, abandon random behavior, and it makes things a lot easier. It gets us closer to the goals. And our common errors, the common errors for the insurgent, random behavior, as we had just talked about, that's a, that's a common error across the board. It's, you know, this management of savagery that our author speaks about, it's, it's not about just creating disorder. For him, it was about creating disorder in the region in order to destabilize the central power so that there was a region of savagery that they could then control. So by abandoning uh, random behavior, again, that, that can only lead to better things for you and for your forces. On the other side of things, rigidity is not a good idea either. Uh, adhering to any specific plan for any length of time is not good for the insurgent. The battlefield is constantly changing. Everything your opponent does affects what your next move is going to be. Every movement, every, every amount of perception that they have as to what you're doing, as to your movements, all these things will affect the plan. So trying to adhere to one rigid doctrine or one rigid plan is not the way. 
it's a good idea to have a, a, a general goal in mind and to constantly be making plans that put you closer to that goal. But by no means should those things be considered inconcrete, unchangeable. So, abandon rigidity as well, but don't quite go as far as random behavior. And the last one is to be too eager for combat or too eager for death, as our author puts it. You see this a lot. When people are, are either on the smaller team or the less skilled team, they'll just be like, you know what? Kick it. I, I'm going to go across to the other, the other side and just die gloriously. I'm just going to charge into them and take out as many as I can before I go down. Numbers are precious to the insurgent side. Obviously, neither side wants to lose people. It's bad for morale. It's bad for resources. But especially for the insurgent, where bodies are probably limited, this wastes. In terms of physical wargaming, you just cost your team a body. In terms of intellectual wargaming, you can throw an entire game just by recklessly running at your opponent in abandon. So don't be too eager. Remember we were speaking about patience and timing. These are very, very important concepts for the insurgent. So how do we improve the efficiency of the insurgent? How do we, how do we get things rolling in the right direction. Well, our author says, if regular armies concentrate in one place, they lose control. Conversely, if they spread out, they lose efficiency. So this means that, you know, your, your opponent is kind of in a catch-22, if you know how to play the situation right. Because obviously, if they condense into one group, you're going to have greater movement about the field as the insurgent, which is good. They're harder to get at, but that means that you can maneuver a little bit better and try to get, get your forces into a favorable position. Whereas if they spread out, you can attain local numeric superiority in some place because assumingly you're, you're more mobile. Your army or your, yourself or your group is going to be more mobile. So in this particular case, you can, you can kind of consolidate in specific areas and take out your enemy piecemeal. So either way... The counterinsurgent is kind of at a disadvantage in this way. You may think that the insurgent is at a disadvantage, but if the insurgent plays their cards right, it's actually the central power that has the issues. So to do this, you want to choose favorable locations where the enemy cannot dedicate forces, otherwise they lose control. So an extreme flank, an outpost, something like that, where your enemy would have to dedicate a lot of resources and significantly weaken themselves in other sectors. These are good places to hit because it's a weakness that your enemy cannot afford to cover up. So, uh, something to keep in mind. When you're rating your operations, which is to say when you're, when you're trying to figure out the frequency at which they occur, there are three different types, escalating, fixed, and undulating. Our author recommends that you begin with small operations and then escalate to larger ones, even if you're capable of large ones to begin with. That slow escalation, the attrition of the numbers, is, is something that kind of eats away not at the enemy's resources only, but also at the enemy's morale. It makes them wonder what's going to come next. So this, this is a good idea. And these different things, so you've got the escalating operations, which is they're steadily getting more intense and, and larger in general. And then you've got fixed operations where you've got this, this steady type of attack. And that's good too. 
where you've just got constant attacks going absolutely everywhere. It can wear an opponent down and really spread them thin. So that's a good way to go about things too, is just to have fixed operations. And then the last one is undulating, which is unpredictable. Sometimes there's a, a high frequency period of operations and then you'll have a very low frequency period of operations. Both of these things are fine within this particular um, idea. All three of these work. You just have to kind of know what your plan is. And to know this, it's good to know your enemy, your enemy's models, your enemy's army, your enemy's group, your enemy's individual personnel. Whatever it takes, knowledge is power, as always. The next thing our author recommends is to strike multiple locations with maximum power. Overwhelming force is the idea here. When you do strike, it's with absolute overwhelming force. And in multiple locations means that your opponent can't redirect resources. Not nearly as easily because you've got two fronts that have just opened up. Something along these ideas is the pay the price strategy, which is to say that anytime your opponent does something, you make them pay a price for it. This is to say that if your opponent ventures out to try to get at you, you strike at the some, some place that's just become weakened. Or if they do come out and take one of your people, you make sure that you, you take uh, a couple of theirs in return. There is no give overs. If they want something from the battlefield or from you, you make them pay the price for it. And this, this can leave an enemy shaken. This combined with the overwhelming force that can be elicited uh, by that local numeric superiority can absolutely affect the enemy's morale, can, can kind of mess up their mind and get them out of the moment. So this is a good thing to pursue, making sure that your opponent is on the back foot. That's always a good thing. And there is no place for mercy in this. Your opponent will not be merciful to you. So even if you see somebody from across the way who you know, or perhaps is titled or something like that, it is unwise to engage them in one-on-one -on -one combat. Because if they lose, well, they've got the larger team. Their team has just lost one body. They can afford to lose one body. But if you're on the smaller team and you lose, that's a significantly more impactful loss than it is for your opponent. So no mercy. No, no uh, giving people freebies, no, no passes, nothing along those lines. If you have a chance to strike, no mercy. And last in this idea is to use disorder to take objectives and then prepare for further action against the enemy. Once you've destabilized them significantly enough, once you've got them into kind of this disorder, that's when there's plans. That's when you move to take the other objectives that you have, because presumably your objective is not to destroy your, your, army, your enemy piecemeal. Not unless it's, it's something like a, a just a straight-up line battle in a physical war game, which it is. Exactly your point is to, to kill your enemy. But in a lot of other game types, and especially on the tabletop ones, there's other objectives. There's a lot of other ways to win. So if you can keep your opponent in disorder and use that to score objectives, well, that's ideal. That's absolutely ideal. So, and then of course, prepare for further action against the enemy. Complacency is not, is not good in this particular case. Just because you achieved it at one time, your opponent is, is trying to retain and trying to regain order as much as possible. So just because you've got them on the, on the back foot in one instance, uh, one should not assume that that back foot will be maintained, not without effort. 
Remember, we had already talked about that the most likely way to defeat a large enemy is to drain their resources, is to stretch them out, make them use their arrows, make them use their javelins, try to exhaust any resource that you can. In terms of 40k, you want to you try to bring them out, try to elicit those one-shot weapons, or bring out those powerful things that can be kind of surrounded. Drain those resources so you don't have to face it all at once. And this requires discipline and patience and timing, as we had suggested before. Rumsfeld, who was uh, one of uh, George W. Bush's cabinet members, when questioned about the Afghanistan war and the amount of money that America was spending at the time, he said, what, what more can we do? Don't forget we're spending billions in combating an enemy that spends millions. And that's the idea. If you're the insurgent, make your opponent pay. Make them pay the price for absolutely everything and, and just give them absolute heck at every turn. But on the other side, what is a counterinsurgent to do? Like we said, the counterinsurgent almost has a, a tougher job because they have certain rules and strictures and ways of fighting that are more effective for them and far more rigid in nature than the insurgent has. So the counterinsurgent actually kind of has their work for, cut out for them. If their opponent knows what they're doing. If they don't, it's just a bunch of smaller groups that are easy to hit and destroy one-on-one. -on -one. But if your opponent knows what they're doing, the counterinsurgent actually does have a little bit of a tougher job. So the job of the, the counterinsurgent is kind of divided up into three sections, three phases, if you will, of the idea of what you're trying to achieve. The first phase is concentrating your forces if you can destroy a large number of insurgents. So there's always a, a, a toss-up again between the concentration and the control by spreading out a little bit. There needs to be a balance here. But concentrate those forces if you can destroy a large number. That's significant. Because remember, your opponent can't usually afford to lose those bodies. The second part of this, the follow-up, is to detach sufficient forces to prevent a comeback. If you've managed to secure an area, Make sure that it remains secured and that when you leave, it's not just going to be taken back over by folks that are quicker than you and, and kind of watching for you to do just that. So detach uh, sufficient forces to prevent that comeback. And third is to do search and destroy missions, which is like mop up. Make sure that you isolate the smaller pockets and deal with them one by one until the threat is gone. So that, that's kind of the phases that the counterinsurgent is trying to go through. Uh, trying to smack down a bunch of uh, insurgents at one time, secure the area, and then hunt down the rest of them. Seems pretty easy, uh, at, least against, uh, at least in theory, <laughs> or against an inferior opponent who doesn't know what they're doing. Some other important principles to understand as a counterinsurgent is... Uh, we got the following here. The first one being economy of force. Now, there's, a, there's always a balance between overwhelming force and economy of force. But by and large, as the counterinsurgent, you want to use as little force as needed to accomplish your goal. Remember, your opponent is trying to string you out, is trying to make you overcommit to various areas to, to wheedle out your forces, to drain your resources. So the idea here is to use as little force as possible, as, as little as need to, needs to be done to accomplish the mission so that the overall infrastructure doesn't get destabilized by the process. The other thing that needs to be thought about very heavily 
by the counterinsurgent is the ir irreversibility of actions. Once you commit to something, it needs to be something worth committing to because the insurgent can change their plans at any time. They've got small enough numbers that they can break into small groups, they can move off, and they're not any less effective than they were to begin with. As the counterinsurgent, once you begin to dedicate to emotion, to an attack, to a uh, trying to hold an objective, that needs to be what you do. And what needs to be understood is that reversing that is very difficult. Once you've got a lot, like a, a powerful force on the move, turning them around in any sort of speed, nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. In, in whatever war game you're doing, once you start to dedicate, it needs to be something you can follow through. So make sure before you do something that it's something that you don't want to reverse, I guess. Initiative needs to be considered as well. As the counterinsurgent, it's good to be on the offensive constantly. If you allow your opponent time to regroup, if you allow them time to plan, that's not good. That puts you even more into a bad position. And so confronting the insurgent constantly uh, with the choice either to, to, to take that defensive posture or to withdraw is very effective. Because obviously if they take a defensive posture against a larger or superior force, that's going to result in them getting destroyed. If they withdraw, they concede the ground, either of which works for you, the counterinsurgent. So make sure that the attack is constantly being brought to the opponent so that they don't have time to recover, so they don't have time to consolidate or make a solid plan for their movement forward. Use that initiative and crush the opponent when you have the chance. To, to do that, there needs to be a full utilization of assets. Use all the tools at your disposal. And this means knowing your forces, knowing what each unit or each person is capable of within that group. And then you can fully utilize those assets. You can bring them together into an overall plan and make sure that they're being used um, in a way that's most effective and gives you the most utility of them. That's kind of self-explanatory. And goes along with the last important principle that we're going to discuss today for this for the counterinsurgent, which is simplicity. In the army, we had an acronym, K-I-S-S. -S. Keep it simple, stupid. And that's the best thing. If you're sitting there trying to yell out a bunch of complicated orders, it's going to get muffled. It's going to get distorted. It will be misunderstood. Even if you've got radios, the more complex a plan, the easier it is for it to go wrong. Simplicity, simplicity is key. Even if the plan itself is complex, making sure that each unit only understands what they're supposed to do, or each person only understands what they're supposed to do and not overcomplicating it is a good idea. Even for yourself, even for yourself. Remember, plans are great until they, until they hit the enemy, until they hit the field. Any plan's great. And then at that point, you know, it, it sometimes needs to be altered. So if it's a simple plan, it's much easier to work with. So let's discuss the actual operations available to the counterinsurgent. These operations are divided into two categories, offensive techniques and defensive techniques. The offensive techniques are used to fix and engage the opponent. The defensive techniques are used to prevent harassment and the disruption that the insurgent so badly craves. Most of these operations that are available to the counterinsurgent are offensive in nature. And this, again, goes along with the idea of the initiative, constantly bringing the attack to the enemy and disrupting their plans, as they are attempting to do to you. 
The only defensive one, or at least wholly defensive one, is the cordon. And for those of you who don't necessarily know what that means within military science, if you know anything about sports, it's zone defense, where you have different groups that are assigned to different sections, and the whole point of a cordon is to inhibit the enemy's mobility. Because if they're having to dodge through a bunch of different areas that are mutually covered, this is not an isolation thing. You don't want one person or one unit flung far over there and another one flung far over there. They need to be able to support one another, but you're spreading them out just enough to be able to cover more ground, preventing your opponent from being able to move around, move around as freely as they would like. Our second operation is the ambush, and this can be both offensive and defensive in nature. Uh, the ambush in this particular case because we don't necessarily have units that are moving through territory that you can kind of ambush, unless you're doing some form of paintball or airsoft, where those sorts of things can occur. But for those of us doing tabletop or physical wargaming of the fantasy sort, most of your ambushes are going to result from a feigned weakness that is used to draw in your opponent for a surprise attack, a, a, a false retreat or a, a false withdrawal from a confrontation that makes your opponent hungry, that makes them want to pursue you, and then you can fall upon them. And this is, this is a good thing to do. And especially as, a, as the counterinsurgent, your opponent is constantly looking for those weaknesses. And so if you're able to feign one of those weaknesses and they try to come in for the, the kill, so to speak, well, that's, that's when you got them where you want them. Another one of these techniques that is both offensive and defensive in nature is the hasty attack. And this is when, if you make contact, once it's made, you attempt to destroy them immediately, dedicating your forces to, to basically that, that concentration to de destroy a, num a large number of insurgents. And this, this can backfire. You know, if, if your enemy reacts well and spreads out, or if they're able to draw you into an ambush, the hasty attack you know, might not work very great for your strategy. However, if you're able to pin your opponent in place initially and just crush them, that saves you a whole lot of time. Remember that a counterinsurgent does not want a protracted war. So if a hasty attack will get you the victory, it might be worth considering. The rest of our operations are offensive in nature. You have the deliberate attack, which is a planned attack to secure an objective or engage the enemy. Remember, both of these are perfectly valid, no matter what kind of war game you're playing. And the objective could be anything from, you know, a game scoring objective within the, the type that you're playing, or a key position on the field, some place that you can launch additional attacks from or provide support from. In any of these cases, a deliberate attack is something where you're going, I want to accomplish this goal, and we're going to be moving into this area. A similar idea is the raid. Now, it is a, a specific objective. Again, it's a planned attack, but it's a swift attack into hostile territory, followed by a swift withdrawal. There is no intention to stay. This is not an invasion-type operation. This is something that is supposed to accomplish a specific thing, and then you get out. Whether that's, you know, killing your opponent's archers, destroying a leader of some sort, some sort of captain, any of these things can be a good idea for a raid but it has no staying power. So speed, speed is of the essence when you're doing a raid. The granddaddy of all operations, if you can pull it off, is the encirclement. We've talked about it before, 
And Sun Tzu was one of the initial ones to recommend it when you've got a, like a 10 to 1 advantage. You want to go for an encirclement. You don't necessarily have to have those numbers, but a numeric advantage absolutely helps. And it gives you the best chance to achieve decisive results. And there's three different ways to use an encirclement. The first one is a wedge, where you, you've got your circle, but then you have one point that goes in, in like a spearhead. And the idea is to break apart your opponent and drive them towards the outside edges where the other forces are waiting for them. And there's situations where the wedge is very effective. The next one, and this one's very common in Belagarth, is the hammer and anvil, where you have one force that is waiting, usually a larger force, and another force that works to drive them in specifically to that one force. So the wedge kind of tries to break them up and send them towards the outsides. The hammer and, am the hammer and anvil is simply to crush, is simply there to destroy them piecemeal. And it's very satisfying when you can pull it off. The last one is contraction. And this is when all edges slowly move in toward the center evenly, pinning the opponent and eventually uh, making them not be able to fight. They don't have the mobility. They don't have uh, any sort of breakout. And so it's just this sort of slow strangulation that occurs. There's a, a battle in the Game of Thrones series. And if you haven't seen it, well, you know what? Actually, I don't really care about spoilers. It's been out for long enough. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it, but this won't spoil much for you. It's the Battle of Winterfell, I believe, where they get all of the, the, the group that has come out with Jon Snow and they're pinned between all these shields that Renly Barath, or that, uh, that Renly, yeah, just Renly. No, it's been a while since I've watched Game of Thrones, apparently. Um, it's my cousin's favorite character, too. He'd kill me for this. Anyways you got this line of shields on the outside and they're slowly pressing inwards. And not only are the weapons that the counterinsurgents in this particular case using uh, killing folks, but there's also the panic. There's also the stumbling over one another. You notice that the, uh, the fighting effectiveness goes way down when that mo mobility goes away. So this contraction can be very effective. It can also lead to extremely dedicated fighting so it can backfire as well. So after you've pulled one of these off, one of these uh, offensive attacks we've talked about, there's two other ideas that happen afterwards. The first one is exploitation. And these are actions that are undertaken to follow up on a successful attack, whether those are moving to secure a now open objective, or whether it is to prepare for another attack against the enemy, grab resources, whatever the case may be. Exploitation is following up on whatever you just did. To go a step further, pursuit are offensive actions against a retreating enemy. And this, this is to be very cautious. A retreating enemy can string you out, can make people too bold, and can lead to a defeat afterwards. We've seen this in, in many of the battles that we've covered. So pursuit is to be undertaken lightly, but it also can be effective because it can keep your opponent from being able to regroup and come at you again. Remember, constant harrying is part of this. So whether you're the insurgent or the counterinsurgent, having a good understanding of the battlefield, having a good understanding of your opponent and the willingness to adapt your plans to what is occurring in front of you, this is going to work the best, obviously. And many of these things will come in handy as well. So I hope that uh, they prove useful to you because I've really enjoyed actually reading about them myself.
So now let's move into our second section when I interview a good friend of mine, Har. My guest today is Par, a person that I've known basically since I started in Bellegarth. We've uh, we've definitely been in one another's bubble and, and more in more recent years friends. And uh, and yeah, I love this guy. I'm, I'm glad to have him on the show. And, and Par, welcome to you. Uh, thanks, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I've been really excited about the potential of coming on your guys' show since you started. Uh, I think our topics today are going to be really great for everybody listening. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked stoked to be on The Art of Wargaming. Well, we are stoked to have you, sir. And your, uh, shall we say, pedigree is not lacking. Uh, would you mind letting the listeners know kind of what your experience is in wargaming? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I suppose I should start with, um, you know, a background in uh, RTS strategy games when I was in junior high and high school. Uh, I started doing Belagarth uh, in 2003, uh, which means... Uh, my uh, uh, career is just about old enough to drink. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've played Warhammer now for Warhammer 40,000 uh, and, and Kill Team. Uh, Kill Team since the new rules came out, Warhammer 40,000, I think for about seven years now. Uh, and then I've been an active airsofter uh, for, uh, this is my 10th year airsofting, and before that I was on a competitive paintball team. Um, all of my hobbies are pretending to kill someone so so you're experienced is what i'm hearing <laughs> yeah i've got a lot of experience in the wargaming realm well outstanding i i think that experience will definitely come in handy today uh so f- first off within Bellegarth, you're a part of a unit called the brotherhood of the falcon which is a group that we've talked about several times on this show um and they tend to be a larger force uh, a bit more of what you would call a conventional force and I imagine that they sometimes that you guys sometimes have ta- a hard time with those harrying units, those ones that kind of break apart and wolf pack. And even though they might be smaller, they're super mobile. Um, how exactly do you find is an effective way of dealing with that? Yeah, so um, I'm about to actually have my 10 year anniversary um, of being sashed into the unit this June. So it's been really neat to be a part of them for about half my career. Um, and, and Brotherhood does have, I think at last count, we had nearly 80 active members, uh, but they're spread all over the country. So uh, you've got pockets uh, in Idaho and Illinois and Tennessee where you're going to see 20 to 25 people on the field. And then you've got areas where we don't have quite as many folks uh, up where you are um, in Missoula. Um, down in California, we've got a couple people. Uh, we've got some people in Michigan, so we're, we're spread a little thinner there. When we're together at a big event, like Chaos Wars, Armageddon, uh, Oktoberfest, or Battle for the Ring, uh, you know, our numbers can hit 35 to 50 pretty easily. Um, Which makes you one of the larger forces on the field, then. It, it does, and it makes us a bit of a target. Um, what's nice about where we are as a unit is we're a target, but we are pretty easily able to convince folks that other targets are juicier or or more delectable to attack uh when we have smaller units um they basically have to gang up on us to to winnow us out 
Um, of course, there's always a little bit of attrition when, you know, a group of 25 hits a group of 10, someone's going to get hit, you know, unless you're playing, unless you're playing error free ball, someone's going to get hit. And so there's a little bit of attrition. Um, but we have a couple of, of kind of, uh, interesting ways that we deal with those folks. If we can get a small group by itself, then we hit them really hard. Um, and we pride ourselves on the ability to look for two on one opportunities and it gets really, really, uh, excellent because we really practice supporting our pole arms and our archers to kind of get those advantages when we can't we like to do something we nicknamed um we actually invented it at a chaos wars where they were shrinking the field um and we started calling ourselves the fence and what we did Mm. was we pushed back and forth along the bottom hard edge and as that hard edge shrunk we pushed the smaller units into the bigger units and it was oh. surprisingly effective against smaller units who would try to, to get on our sides because they couldn't get behind us because we were hugging that back hard edge. And right. as it moved, we moved. And, you know, we were at that point, I think we had 22 or 23 fighters up and groups of five and six would like come and start to square up. And as we'd step with the field, they realized there was no way to flank around the edge. And so they were going to have to fight us either at even numbers on a flank or at a huge disadvantage in the middle. And we ended up winning a staggering number of those unit battles just occupying the moving edge and making sure that we never got taken by it. So it, we really ended up a corralling force, uh, you know, the same way that ancient humans would hunt buffalo or, you know, mammoths even by driving them off a cliff. That's what we were doing. We were a herding force. We were... Uh, you know battle shepherds for lack of a better term pushing groups up and then by the time we got to the end there would be maybe two groups each of them half the size of us and they had a choice they could fight each other or they could fight us and and only one time did they get smart and fight us together and they ended up losing that fight anyway um but yeah that was a a a nifty tactic that we've kind of adopted into our playbook um if there's a shrinking edge we try to become the fence and push people if we've got the manpower well, that's uh, Military Science 101. Uh, it says you want to anchor at least one flank in an impassable place so that you uh, are free to go otherwise. Um, and even if that impassable place is moving, it sounds like you guys were doing well at keeping free people from being able to, to flank you very well, to like, get behind you. Yeah, absolutely. We, we put our, our whole line, basically, stretched across this bottom border. And so there literally was not room to go to the left or the right of us because anybody who did died uh the the other thing that i was noticing in what you were talking about is it sounds like the brotherhood of the falcon are very tight like y'all don't spread out it's not a a massive try to cover area you all seem to keep your power centralized yeah yeah that's a typical strategy uh uh, not entirely unlike you know the scottish shiltrum or the roman phalanx although um you know not quite the same in practice but we do try to try to basically make a, a Death Star ball um, and try to make sure that we can't get completely flanked. Uh, it lets us protect our poles much easier, lets us protect our archers much easier. Um, so we're just kind of like in this uh, dome, I guess. And and it doesn't always work. Sometimes we get flanked. You know, nobody's perfect. Um, but that's the uh, idea. Yeah, the idea is that we can concentrate. We get too spread out, uh, especially out west where we are such a pole-heavy unit where we've got Robin and, uh, sorry, Sir Robin and Sir Rem, who are two of the better pole armists in Belagarth. Um, uh, you know, we've really got to protect them. Uh, we've got 
and, and we actually also have a, a large number of, of individuals who um, prefer pole because it doesn't take as much raw strength. Um, you know, Sevi and Amel Deer, they're most effective on spears where it doesn't take as much body, uh, you know, body momentum. They're both uh, shorter individuals. And so they're, they're easy for us to protect from, from arrows. And they're at such a low center of gravity that they can generate force with the spears where they wouldn't necessarily be able to generate as much force with a sword or a, a flail. And so being able to, to put us in a ball and let our really talented, uh, you know, shieldmen protect our really talented polearm folks really sets us up to be successful against, you know, groups who, especially groups who are smaller than us, um, who don't necessarily have the oomph uh, to, to get in there and kind of deal with this um, kind of unbalanced uh, polearm line. Um, you know, obviously, like I said, nobody's perfect and we get picked apart occasionally, but, you know, we're conscious of what our strengths are. And I think that is a big step for so if you're out there listening and you're like i wonder what my small unit's next step is it's being conscious of what your strengths are and starting to train to them as opposed to just going out and swinging stick and seeing what happens and that's really where we've gotten is we've trained to our strengths and made sure that we protect the people who are going to help us win unit battles it's it's incredibly important to protect your assets. <clears throat> you know, if, if you're on a like a more modern battlefield or like the one that we're studying right now during the Soviet-Afghan war, you know, protecting your airfields, protecting your artillery, um, you know, ground troops and helicopters can only do so much. So so like you say, those those more delicate assets that are more functional at a longer range, it can do more punch. They're absolutely worth protecting. And also keeping us together, keeping us together keeps us unified in direction. Um, I know you've been on fields where you've got uh, unit leaders or folks who are supposed to be what what is colloquial known as driving the bus, mm-hmm. screaming across the field to try to bring people back. If we stay concentrated, we don't have to yell our orders. We just have to be loud enough for us to hear, which means we're not telegraphing to say the Gelfs who are on the other side of the field what direction we're going or who we're going to square up against. And sure. so since we don't have to scream, it doesn't put us at risk of, of a PSYOP, I guess, or like a, a you know, intelligence a, a, breach, intelligence breach. Yeah, that's that's a good word for it. Um, you know, we, we stay unified. We stay with, you know, with a goal. And and also, like, especially Sir Robin, he doesn't uh, he doesn't speak loud anyway. And so we we have to stay together to for people to hear him. Um, so it's kind of just something that we've adapted to kind of stay tight like that. Well, you know, and, and that matches up with a lot of what we've been studying in terms of conventional tactics. One of the worst things that a, a conventional or counterinsurgent army can do is try to spread out, kind of delude that strength. And while you're not necessarily able to control as much area, you, you're able to give that overwhelming force when it's necessary. But that also begs a question, when you're on a field that has multiple smaller elements, perhaps not just one other team, but multiple smaller elements that you're dealing with, how do you keep yourself from being pulled out of position going after one of those and making yourself vulnerable to others? Well, okay, so that comes from two places. One is training and the other one, and I'm going to be perfectly honest, is that I'm chubby for people who haven't met me and I don't like to run. So if I square up, if let's say we've got a group of five or six people who come and square up and then bolt, I'm not going to let my team go after them because we would have to run to chase them. 
why would I do that and exhaust, you know, <laughs> myself? I also typically for unit battles, again, for those folks who listen who don't know me well, am tanked up. Uh, that's a term that means armored. Uh, certainly chest and arms, typically also thighs and uh, at least thighs uh, on the bottom. And so that's extra weight, uh, in, you know, that I have to expend energy to move. And I fight with a decent sized heater shield and in a unit battle situation, I probably have a couple of javelins and a flail. So uh, that's a lot of extra equipment to kind of move to try to chase someone who's skinnier or faster than I am. And I very much try to live my sword fighting life by the why run, you'll just die tired. Um, so I try not to chase people and I don't let my teammates chase them either. If they want to run away, let them run away. Someone else will get them in the meat grinder you know, we're going to kind of move with purpose and attack with purpose. And um, it really does cut down on the chaos. Well, absolutely. And, and disorder is one of the things that doesn't work well for the counterinsurgent force. Disorder is something that the insurgent wants to create. They want to break you apart. They want to make sure that your, your force is being dissipated, like we say. But, you know, obviously you're trying to avoid that. You have a, a structure, uh, a, a sense of, of protocol that should be followed, and that's how you're most effective, yeah? Yeah, 100%. We have absolutely have a, a standard operating procedure is what the Army would call it, or an SOP is what American military would call it. Um, we refer to it as the Codex, which is absolutely a Warhammer 40,000 reference. Our units um, draws a lot of our unit lore from Adeptus Astartes. Um, we have uh, you know chaplains in our units and librarians in our unit, and they fulfill a different function. Uh, it's not like our chaplains are, are trying to root out heresy in the unit. Um, uh, I myself uh, hold the rank of lieutenant, which is, a, as you know, an Astartes rank. Um, there we have an Astartes captain. And then, um, you know, we essentially have the equivalent uh, insert piper of a chapter master. Um, so our rank structure is very similar to what you would find in an Astartes unit, uh, in the fluff in particular, and a little bit on the tabletop. Um, and our codex very much has uh, has what we call our playbook, which are um, exactly like an NFL team has. They have uh, code names for what we're supposed to do. Um, and of course, I'm not going to reveal any of those secrets here, but we do have them. So we have words that mean things, uh, our own shorthand. And that helps concentrate and keep people in line when we do when we are tempted to go after what looks like easy bait uh, or when we are being pushed by a group that's even bigger than us but doesn't have um, you know, the same kind of like structure or even, even skill. Uh, you know, numbers will win a fight, but not always, and rarely against a group that trains and works against, you know, works towards their strengths. And so, uh, you know, we're, we are conscious of those things and we work and train towards those things and we have made them official parts of the way our unit interacts with itself. And um, it does, it makes it actually really easy to avoid stepping into a murder hole uh, between two units. Now, every now and then we'll get goofy, so don't take this as like gospel. I mean, we've charged, Leon's been called, and we've gone right up the, the gut of a unit battle at Chaos Wars to attack a specific team for fun. Uh, but when we're trying to win stuff, we very much have a, you know, our own shorthand, um, our own way of approaching order and, and uh, making sure that we're, we're set up to not fall into the trap of attrition because that's the worst thing that can happen to a big bell unit is for the attrition to happen and you get you know you lose a fighter here and there and there and there and then when it comes time to square up against the other people who do what you do you're at a disadvantage those fights are much harder to win than if you win them ahead of time by not making stupid decisions 
But that discipline, that discipline obviously serves you quite well. It does. It really does. It makes us, uh, uh, really keeps us from falling victim to, um, you know, that, that war of attrition keeps us from stepping into, you know, taking bait that's, that's there and obvious and running across the field and doing something, uh, that's going to be an obvious mistake. Um, and that's when we're trying to win things as opposed to like when we're just trying to have some fun. Cause I mean, we've done stupid things like that before. Um, but yeah, when we're in a, in a winning mindset we're our goal is to avoid attrition because that's one of the worst things that can happen to you is to get squared up with a, a team that's avoided attrition better than you have and it comes down to time to win something and you're at a disadvantage because you made stupid decisions going into it. Right, right. There's a, there's a whole series that happens before the battle that kind of determines how that battle's going to go. Yeah, I mean, it's an old adage that battles are won on one square foot of real estate and then somebody points to their brain, but it's true. Uh, and it's and that's true in video games, right? If you're trying to do, I mean, take Dance Dance Revolution, for example, right? You want economy of motion. To beat the hardest levels, you have to not be silly with your movements. You have to, you know, re- conserve your strength. It's true. It's especially true in Big Milsim Airsoft uh, events. Um, you know, I go to Airsoft events that last 48 continuous hours. And we'll have young people who are, um, you know, it'll be, it was, they start on Friday night and they end sometimes Sunday morning. Uh, it's Milson West is the primary company that puts those on that I attend. And, and Saturday afternoon, we'll get kids who are in their twenties. who are like, I'm bored. I want to go, I want to go get some trigger time. And the older folks are trying to tell them don't rest is, is a resource in the same way that bodies are a resource in the same way that bullets are a resource. And if you waste them, we will lose later and trying to get those kids to, chill out and take a minute and just get an hour of sitting down, which they may not have ever again at the event, right? You could be on your feet for 20 hours straight, uh, depending right. on how the event goes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely being smart wins fights. And there's, there's a balance there between the overwhelming force that you're talking about, the avoiding attrition and just crashing down on a group before they can even react before they can really do anything in response. But there's also an economy of force. You're not doing more than you need to. You're not losing more people than you need to so that you're, you're kind of reserving. You're not spending what you have willy nilly. Yeah. I mean, historically that bears out too. I guess I should have also mentioned that I'm a professional historian. Uh, I teach at Boise state university. And if you're talking about, um, the American civil war is a good example uh, Lee won battles early because he understood this kind of economy of force. He understood mm-hmm. that he could win fights against a larger, less enthusiastic, and I won't say worse trained because the Union Army had good training, but they weren't fighting for their lives or their homes or their way of life or whatever right. uh, in the way that the Southerners were. And Southerners absolutely knew they were fighting for slavery. Like, that's some Lost Cause BS to say otherwise. Um, <laughs> even if they didn't own slaves they knew what they were fighting for their way of life then when grant takes over um and it was just grant's birthday the other day um which is what prompted me to remind it uh remember this he knew what he had was extra money and extra people uh the north was far more densely populated than the south was um especially since the south wasn't employing slaves to fight um and he knew that he could spend lives and and then you look at the the battles that were fought when grant took over and Grant would just throw bodies at a problem. And in fact, Cold Harbor was one of his biggest disasters. And he lost a lot of people 
but he said, like, I've got an army and I'm going to use it. And he right. knew that he could just throw bodies at Lee until Lee quit. And when you know you can do that, you've got the opportunity to just do that thing. When you're in a war game, those those things are artificially restricted. The number of participants is restricted. Uh, the number of people interested is restricted. Um, you can't just draft. You can't go to, like, the mall and draft 30 guys into your sword fighting unit and, like, give them gear right. and expect them to know what they're doing. <laughs> you are conscripted now. Yeah, you have to come to this event and do this thing or you'll go to jail. Um, so you don't have the opportunity to do, like, what Grant did or what the Russians did at Stalingrad um, and just throw bodies at it till till the problem goes away. Uh, so you have to kind of deal with this economy of motion. But Lee knew that he had a finite number of resources, and he used them really, really well uh, early on in the war, all the way up till, I mean, really, he starts to kind of lose his grip on that. Gettysburg is the big, the big battle, but you can see that starting to happen as early as March of the same year of 1863. Well, yeah, when, when Jackson died, when Jackson yeah. died, it put him on tilt, yeah. Yeah, it really did. Um, and not that Jackson was some kind of brilliant commander, but he was, because of his religious fervor, such a mm -hmm. steadying presence to his men that he was able to kind of change the way they approached battle. They figured if Jackson was blessed by God, and Jackson very much thought that he was, um, that they would also be blessed by God. And then when he died, that definitely changed kind of the belief system, especially of Jackson's men or anybody who fought next to Jackson. And the way they fight starts to change. And that's, Lee really started, you know, historians can look back and say like, oh, Jackson dying is what cost Lee the war. But really it was the decisions that Lee started to make in the absence of Jackson is what cost sure. Lee the war. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that economy of force versus overwhelming force is a, is a really big balance. Like you say, especially in war games where we do have finite resources, where we can't just be like Grant and be like, well, we're going to take every immigrant and stuff them into a, a, a uniform and throw them at the South. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Could you imagine handing out Dark Angel sashes to like 45 randos at the grocery store outside of Chaos Wars? Like, <laughs> oh, come on. You know, we got a unit battle in, uh, in 25 minutes. You just got to come out. And then spending... You know, at that point, recruits were still getting trained, but obviously in a draft situation, and that was true in Vietnam. It's why drafty uh, casualties were so high in Vietnam. Not as much in World War II because we had a little more of a lead-in for it, although draftees were not as well trained in World War II. Um, you know, those guys would get destroyed. Like, you could send those 45 guys up my 20 Brotherhood members, and I'm going to kill them all, uh, but we, we're going to lose some people. And, and as right. we lose some people, just from newbie foo or whatever it is, uh, making bad decisions, being arrogant, um, that was also one of Lee's faults is, is he started to buy his own press of invincibility. And, uh, and yeah, when you feel like you've got it in the bag, right, when you, if you're talking about being in an overwhelming force um, or really um, that force doesn't necessarily have to be bodies, it can be skill and equipment too. If you're talking about a, a technologically advanced group, I mean, that's what Custer thought when he fought um, a little bighorn, which is in your neck of the woods, right? Um, mm -hmm. Uh, Custer thought he had a technological advantage and he could fight 500 times the number of people that he fought and clearly that didn't work but when you're convinced that you have such an advantage you tend to be lax and that's one thing that Brotherhood in particular tries to drill into our people is there's no advantage in the world that's so good that you can't get killed by a new person or you can't get killed by someone you think you're better than and so um you know, and we've been taken to the cleaners by folks that, by all rights, we should have we should have beat. 
and uh, and it's been you know it's always humbling to get your clock cleaned and it, you know it happens to the best of us happens to me um, and uh, so when you're talking about overwhelming versus economy it's not just bodies it's skill um, you know if you take 10 good fighters and I'm sure I'm sure you've I know you guys do Renaissance fairs up there in Mizcon so you've been involved in um, you know 10 bell members versus probably 25 or 30 kids and you just cleaned their clocks but I'm sure you also lost some people occasionally. I know that happens when we do our Renaissance Fair down here. Um, I'll go in, you know, two swords spinning, trying to do my Leonardo impression, and I'll get hit in the back <laughs> by some by some eight year old, right? Um, and so it's not, yeah, it's not just th- those overwhelming in economy. Those two ideas aren't just people. It's skill. It's resources. It's technology in particular. Um, you know, if you've got drones and they've got rocks, you're going to win, which. You know the the that kind of disparate amount of uh, uh, a lineup can it can create a, a weakness in in the form of arrogance, but it's also a really good way to lay odds if you were a betting person on who was going to come out of that fight the winner. So that's very true. Consider. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, here real quick before we wrap up, I did want to ask you about being on the other side because your Warhammer experience, you've got some Raven Guard going on. And then in your airsoft, there's often a force disparity as well. So speaking from the other side real quick, um, what, what do you find like conversely, like if you're trying to attack somebody like the BOF, if you're trying to, to kind of break up that cohesion, what kind of tricks, techniques, or, or strategies would you be using? Yeah, uh, so, so kind of playing the role of, um, for, for our conversation today, what we've termed the insurgent, but really just anybody who's on the fuzzy end of the lollipop uh, when it comes to numbers or, um, you know, uh, technology, really the only, the only sure fire way to overcome that kind of disadvantage is training and skill. Um, and I say, I say skill and not talent because you can be the most talented person in the world and still get, you know, still get gapped. Um, Mm -hmm. Raven Guard on the tabletop. I also play Sisters of Battle, so I kind of have both um, kind of setups. But Raven Guard, and then I play against a guy who plays Custodes, which is even uh, you know more you know, fewer models. And then my kind of like I don't care list is is Imperial Knights when I only have like four models on the table. So it really is you know the number of guns you can get pointed in the right direction matter when you're talking about assaulting. In airsoft, we typically try to make sure that the teams are as close as possible, or we do something along the lines if we're playing kind of more shallow games and we're not doing a military simulation, we'll set somebody up in a really strong defensive position, but give them fewer people or give them the same number of people and give them, you know, finite respawns where the attacking team gets infinite respawns and then to see who wins and then you flip. uh, And then the then who wins is time, right? Based on who can who can kill the other team faster. Sure. But in that situation, it is incredibly important for you to analyze your opponent. The only way to win a fight against overwhelming odds, overwhelming force, whatever, is, is to be smarter than they are. And, and that includes, like, like we were talking about earlier, deploying or protecting your artillery. You've got to deploy it correctly. In, in Airsoft, we typically use, um, you know, we've got all sorts of grenades. Uh, a couple of our guys have M203, the fake grenade launchers that shoot Nerf rockets. Uh-huh. Um, 
you know, if you're if you're doing kind of the mock artillery, then you need to use it against an entrenched position. You can't just, you know, you can't just civil war it and go right at it. Um, right. Or you will get shot uh, with a little piece of plastic. And, and that's just sad. Uh, what gets really interesting in airsoft is when you have a is when you have to do things like um, rolling retreats. Um, if you get yourself into a the biggest the biggest thing in any war game is if you find yourself in that situation and you don't have to stay there if you don't have to do some kind of like crazy last stand leave. Uh, I was watching a video from a SWAT officer who was saying like the five things airsofters don't do that they could and his number one was they never retreat. It's always you know make right. a stand to the last man. Brotherhood disengages uh, when we're out when we're outmatched. We look for a more advantaged piece of terrain. We look for a more advantaged. Um, can we get allies, right? Can we just keep somebody here? Really, when we were talking about the fence, that was a series of disengagements that we were forcing other people to do. In Airsoft, if you walk up, if I'm walking walking down, you know, let's say a, a, a wooded path, and all of a sudden the trees in front of me just start getting lit up with plastic, I'm going to take 20 or 30 steps back and think about how do I come into this different. The same goes, sure. you know, when we're talking about attacking people who are entrenched, there's a field here in Boise that, that has just gnarly cover in the middle of it, but you can get all the way around it. And so really it's about coordinating your attack to dig these people out of this really, really good terrain. Um, so to, if you're going to play the insurgent, you have to play that game smart, um, especially if you're in like a lead grant situation where they have more numbers or they have more resources. You have to be smarter than they are. And, and Lee was smarter than McClellan, who was the original Union general. He outsmarted him a number of oh, times. Oh, without a doubt. Including, oh, yeah. including at one point he ran his, uh, he ran his, uh, he took like a small group of cavalry and rode them in a circle for an hour so that McClellan thought that, uh, that he had like 10 times the number of dudes he did while his army left, while Lee was retreating because he knew he was outnumbered. So being efficient and, and, and as the folks on Letterkenny say, if you, should, if you can be one thing, you should be efficient. Um, that is the only way to, uh, to, to defeat those kind of odds. Yeah, and, and it's something to consider. Again, like, there's intelligence on both sides, obviously. You've got to be smart to be a counterinsurgent. You've got to be sm- smart to be an insurgent. And there's definitely a matter of understanding your opponent in both ways. Now, I, I'm sorry I have to cut this interview short. Par, I could talk to you for the next couple hours about this, but... Uh, we, we do have to move on a little bit. I want to have you back on the show, though, if you're up for that. Yeah, I'd we be can... happy to come back on. Just send me the topics and I'll be here. Heck yeah. Well, we'll continue the conversation then. But for now, join us as we move into our study of the Panjshir Offensives. For today's historic deep dive, we will be discussing the Panjshir Offensives in, uh, in the Soviet-Afghan War. Now, remember in the last couple episodes, we were talking about the conditions that precipitated this, this crisis, that made this war necessary in the first place, from the instability that was occurring within the government, and then, of course, the Soviet occupation that followed, this destabilized uh, basically the whole country, Eight, roughly 80% of the countryside was completely uncontrolled by government forces. So the reason it's called the Panjshir Offensives is because these uh, operations took place in the Panjshir Valley. 
This is located about 70 kilometers north of Kabul. And the reason that this particular valley was so important to the Soviets is because it is near the Salang Pass in the Hindu Kush mountains, which is to say one of the major transportation routes between the Soviet Union, in this particular case through Kazakhstan, and into this new area that they were occupying. So, logistically speaking, it was a very, very important area for the Soviets. It also happened to be a guerrilla hotbed led by one particular man named Ahmed Shah Massoud. And this, of course, drew special attention. There was conflict throughout the entire uh, country, but this region drew that special attention because of these ambushes upon the logistical system. So the Soviet strategy throughout this entire conflict, their idea was to incorporate extensive aerial bombings, using helicopters to harass and contain, and then a lot of mechanized infantry blitz. A lot of these tactics had worked extremely well in World War II, which was the conflict that most major powers based their policies and tactics on for decades to come. So this would have been, would have been good in terms of World War II. And it was based on the assumption that they were fighting a truly inferior force that they were using defunct weapons, they had the inability to engage in higher tactics. All of these things contributed to the hubris that the Soviet commanders had coming into this, this conflict. So initially, they tried to employ conventional tactics. The Mujahideen, of course, had their own plans in motion. And many of the plans that the Soviets had were leaked. The Mujahideen had ears just about everywhere. They had sympathizers and members all throughout the Afghanistan government and military. So when something was going to happen, they usually had a heads up, which is huge when you're talking about the information war and how that relates to actual military strategy. You know, having moles in your organization is never a good thing. One of the things I was absolutely noticing, by the way, as I was going over the information for this again, is the disparity of the casualty reports between you know, international organizations, the Soviet Union, and the Mujahideen themselves. And as a general rule, the Soviets give a really high estimation to the number of kills that they achieved, like really high. Whereas they'll claim like several hundred kills and the Mujahideen are like, uh, you killed five of us. So, I mean, the rest were, were villagers and country folk who got bombed for absolutely no reason. We got away. So... There was a lot of high estimation of the kills, and they constantly underestimated the numbers that the insurgents could bring to bear. The Mujahideen had support from all over the place, steadily increasing throughout this conflict, and the Soviets continued again and again and again to underestimate the number of insurgents that were coming at them and that were operating in the area. So what kind of precipitated a lot of these offensives was in... April of 1980, three Soviet battalions and some Afghan defense forces advanced into Panjshir Valley. The rebels allowed them to, and then they started conducting lightning raids and ambushes as the, the convoy was passing through. However, the mission that they were hoping to accomplish was done, and they installed an Afghan garrison at Rokha. However, this garrison underwent constant siege and harassment, and they suffered from extremely no low morale, as one might imagine from this constant harassment. 
Uh, several months later, in August of 1980, the Soviets decide to actually do something about this. And, and the campaign that they launch is 21 days of rapid advance and these helicopter landings. And uh, these helicopter landings, by the way, so they would fly people in and drop them right into the LZ when you've got these mechanized battalions also following up. But once again, the rebels largely allow them to pass and then have constant harassment and ambushes. The Soviet deaths here were much higher than the rebel deaths because they were fighting in insurgent terrain. The Mujahideen knew those mountains and passes better than the Soviets could ever hope to. And so they used that to their advantage and continually had the, the advantage there. The rebel pressure continues now, but they've also got some captured artillery. So Roca is really suffering at this point. In November of 1980, another convoy comes in and reaches Roca. Uh, it's like a relief convoy. They're bringing supplies, weapons, new folks, all that sort of thing. While they do this, there is an indiscriminate bombing campaign, which is just to say they were bombing anywhere that they thought the rebels might be. And they used foot troops to try to break this siege. However, it's ineffective. And the second that they are not in the area anymore, the rebels come back and the siege continues. The last of this particular series of offensives comes in December of 1980, where they conduct rolling bombardment of the valley which is just like indiscriminate bombing is one thing. Rolling bombardment is just like wipe out that patch of earth. And a lot of civilians died. A lot of civilians died. For the most part, the Mujahideen were able to get out of the way. Because remember that they had informers within the, within the group. And so they were largely get out of the way. It was the civilians that suffered very much in this campaign. But that constant harassment, that constant attack on logistics, the Soviets eventually say, we're done with this for now. They evacuate Roca, and the valley comes nearly under complete rebel control. That was the first three of the Panjshir offensives. The fourth Panjshir offensive comes in September of 1981. And at this point, the rebels have had quite a bit of time in this valley. And they, one of the things that the Soviets learned in the first three offensives is that the rebels were, or that the Mujahideen were very good with mines and that these mines were very, very lethal. They may have been rather old technology, but they still worked just fine. And so in this particular offensive, they moved forward very slowly, knowing that the Mujahideen had placed mines on most roads and in strategic areas. But... This slow advance, while being able to clear the mines with sappers, also left them sitting ducks. And the constant harassment and attacks that were coming from the Mujahideen caused them to withdraw before the campaign was even close to being completed. The next one wouldn't happen for another good while. It wasn't until 1982, May. And this whole time, the Mujahideen had been gaining numbers and support from other groups in the region, remember that these Mujahideen were not one unified group. Different areas had different um, warlords, if you will, uh, commanders that were in charge, different groups, different factions in different regions had different uh, uh, leaders. And so there was this very complex myriad of power shifts going on between the, the different groups. But they recognized that this conflict in the Panjshir a valley was very important. And so they were starting to uh, receive 
uh, actual personnel from other groups. And then, of course, there was the international help that we had mentioned in the first episode. And at this point, they were making extensive use of the caves as shelter and to st store their su supply caches. So the caves were, of course, very important and the tunnels between them because that meant that they could move and rest without having to worry so much about the bombing campaigns and the artillery um, campaigns that the Soviets were doing. The rebel strategy was to control and reinforce the heights and the narrow approaches into the valley. And they had done this over the last uh, year or so. And there was a large Soviet advance that was planned into the valley. However, they were going to be doing a diversion attack into a nearby Gorband Valley. And that might have worked, except that Mujahideen sympathizers leaked that plan. And so the Mujahideen knew what was happening. They didn't go for uh, the, the bait in the Gorband Valley. They stayed right where they were. And of course, you had the intense bombardment that uh, characterized all of these operations. And there was airborne and mechanized infantry that came into the area. And it was an overwhelming assault, just a, a massive, massive assault. And the, Rebel, and the Mujahideen were unable to resist it. And instead of trying to, instead of just standing and dying, Massoud divides them into smaller groups and says, scatter, basically. And at this point, the Soviets capitalize on this particular success, and they establish bases not just at Roka, but at Amava and Bazarok as well. And at this time, the Soviets occupy the valley floor, and they capture a list of many agents that are working in Kabul. So it's a huge boon for them. However, the Mujahideen still occupy the heights. They can't quite seem to dislodge them from the heights around the valley. An offensive later that year, the 6th offensive, occurred between August and September of 1982. And, as usual, there was heavy aerial bombardment, this time specifically targeting villages that they thought that the Mujahideen were operating out of. And the Spetsnaz were employed. That's the, like the special forces for the Russians. And the Spetsnaz went and did the search-and-destroy missions. However, the, the, these campaigns overall had a low casualty rate for the Mujahideen. It was very high for Soviets. And these Afghan garrisons that were left suffered from massively low morale and exceptionally high desertion rates, especially after each of these major attacks. And these surprise attacks on the outposts and convoys eventually whittle the Soviets down. These, these tactics that they're using, this, these uh, very aggressive frontal tactics, are failing to yield the, the fruits that they are looking for. And so in January of 1983, a ceasefire is arranged between the, the uh, Mujahideen and the Soviets. And this allows the Soviet troops to peacefully evacuate the Panjshir Valley. Now, this, this ceasefire fire didn't apply to everywhere. There was fierce fighting that still occurred elsewhere, even in the region, but definitely in the country. This ceasefire was specifically the, so the Soviets could withdraw from the valley because they were losing so many assets there. So many resources were getting drained in this attack, uh, these the surprise attacks and these constant harassment of the supply convoys that they just couldn't, they just couldn't do it anymore. Massoud, of course, uses this time to recruit and to expand his influence to, to other surrounding areas. 
groups that will not join him uh, through diplomacy are convinced to do so through force. And he kind of expands his ability to fight this war, expands the resources that are available to him. Now, the war goes on for considerably longer. Remember, we're only talking uh, 1983, and as we know, it goes on for several more years. There were a lot of offensives after this, but these were the ones that were that really demonstrated what we were talking about in the first section and with Parr. And the Soviets kind of messed it up. Remember, in those first three offensives, they really tried to fight it with conventional tactics. And that did not work because the Mujahideen were not going to play their, their game. They expected the Mujahideen to form into like one large force that they could, in, to, could engage. But by about the, the fifth offensive, that idea was starting to get pretty thin because they never were. They were constantly outmaneuvering and outthinking their opponent, and that really worked well. And the Soviets definitely experienced the conundrum between spreading yourself out to be able to try to control an area, but also recognizing that when you do that, you lose your efficacy. And in all of these times of lull, in between operations, you notice that there's this, this large space between most of these operations that only allowed the Mujahideen to maneuver into better situations only allowed the Mujahideen to maneuver into better areas and to draw in more resources and to prepare themselves even more. Now, I, I don't necessarily know what was available in entirety to the Soviets at the time. I don't necessarily know if I'm qualified to have been giving them advice. But these lulls, again, allowed, allowed the Mujahideen to do exactly what they needed to do and prep and prepare and launch the surprise attacks where they wanted to to pick the battles where they wanted to. In the last couple that we discussed, the Soviets were starting to get wise. They were starting to use more disruptive campaigns. They were starting to, to really go for the seek and destroy and, and trying to keep it up. But they just the, the pace at which they needed to fight was just not possible with what they were, were attempting to accomplish with the policies, the rigid policies that they had in place. So in many ways, the Soviets absolutely had the right idea, but they had very flawed execution. And I think you can probably see that for yourself, uh, making the comparison here. And the insurgents definitely managed to draw it out. The decisive conflict that the Soviets sought to end the war quickly, it never came. Massoud was too smart for that. He had no desire to just stand and die in the face of one of the greatest um, land forces that has ever existed in history. He wasn't dumb. So they did what they could, and they worked with what they had, and they tried very, very hard, and they exercised the discipline that we were talking about. These were not just random attacks. This wasn't just different groups acting with complete abandon. There was a plan. There was a strong strategy behind all of this. Now, it was a constantly fluctuating, constantly adapting strategy, but it was one that that worked and that was constantly outpacing their enemy. The Soviets just couldn't keep up with it. So as we said, being the counterinsurgent is often very difficult because you're wanting to fight in a certain way and you, and you can't actually go the way of the insurgent. The tools that are available to an insurgent are not the same tools that are available to a counterinsurgent. So trying to play the other one's game, it just doesn't work. 
So now we understand a little bit more about the perils of the counterinsurgent and just what's at stake here, and just what can happen when mistakes are made in the face of the enemy. And so I would say to you, dear citizen, keep in mind that there are certain playbooks for each side, and it behooves you to understand both to effectively know how to execute your own plans and achieve your own goals. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>